1: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 10 How different it all would have been, I could not but reflect if this girl had been the sort of girl one chirrups cheerily to over the telephone and takes for spins in the old two-seater. In that case, I would have simply said, Listen, and she would have said, What? And I would have said, You know Gussie Finknottle, and she would have said, Yes, and I would have said, He loves you, and she would have said, Either, What that mutt! Well, thank heaven for one good laugh today, or else, in more passionate vein, Hot dog tell me more. I mean to say, in either event, the whole thing over and done with in under a minute. But with the Basset, something less snappy and a good deal more glutinous was obviously indicated. What with all this daylight-saving stuff, we had hit the great open spaces at a moment when twilight had not yet begun to cheese it in favor of the shades of night. There was a fag end of sunset still functioning. Stars were beginning to peep out. Bats were fooling around. The garden was full of the aroma of those niffy white flowers which only start to put in their heavy work at the end of the day. In short, the glimmering landscape was fading on the sight, and all the air held a solemn stillness, and it was plain that this was having the worst effect on her. Her eyes were enlarged, and her whole map a good deal too suggestive of the soul's awakening for comfort. Her aspect was that of a girl who was expecting something fairly fruity from Bertram—' In these cirques, conversation inevitably flagged a bit. I am never at my best when the situation seems to call for a certain soupiness, and I've heard other members of the drone say the same thing about themselves. I remember Pongo Twistleton telling me that he was out in a gondola with a girl by moonlight once, and the only time he spoke was to tell her that old story about the chap who was so good at swimming that they made him a traffic cop in Venice. Fell rather flat, he assured me, and it wasn't much later when the girl said she thought it was getting a little chilly and how about pushing back to the hotel. So now, as I say, the talk rather hung fire. It had been all very well for me to promise Gussie that I would cut loose to this girl about aching hearts, but do you want a cue for that sort of thing? And when, toddling along, we reached the edge of the lake and she finally spoke, Conceive my chagrin when I discovered that she was talking about the stars. Not a bit of good to me— "'Oh, look!' she said. She was a confirmed oh-looker. I had noticed this at Cannes, where she had drawn my attention in this manner on various occasions to such diverse objects as a French actress, a Provençal filling station, the sunset over the Astorals, Michael Arlen, a man selling colored spectacles, the deep velvet blue of the Mediterranean, and the late mayor of New York in a striped one-piece bathing suit.' Oh, look at that sweet little star up there all by itself! I saw the one she meant, a little chap operating in a detached sort of way above a spinney. Yes, I said. I wonder if it feels lonely. Oh, I shouldn't think so. A fairy must have been crying. Eh? Don't you remember? Every time a fairy sheds a tear, a wee bit star is born in the Milky Way. Have you ever thought that, Mr. Wooster?" I never had. Most improbable, I considered, and it didn't seem to me to check up with their statement that the stars were God's daisy-chain. I mean, you can't have it both ways. However, I was in no mood to dissect and criticize. I saw that I had been wrong in supposing that the stars were not germane to the issue. Quite a decent cue they had provided, and I leaped on it promptly. Talking of shedding tears— But she was now on the subject of rabbits— "'several of which were messing about in the park to our right. "'Oh, look, the little bunnies! "'Talking of shedding tears, don't you love this time of the evening, Mr. Wooster, "'when the sun has gone to bed and all the bunnies come out to have their little suppers? "'When I was a child I used to think that rabbits were gnomes, "'and if I held my breath and stayed quite still I should see the Fairy Queen.' Indicating with a reserved gesture that this was just a sort of loony thing I should have expected her to think as a child, I returned to the point. "'Talking of shedding tears,' I said firmly, "'it may interest you to know that there is an aching heart in Brinkley Court.' This held her. She cheesed the rabbit theme. Her face, which had been aglow with what I supposed was a pretty animation, clouded. She unshipped a sigh that sounded like the wind going out of a rubber duck. "'Ah, yes. Life is very sad, isn't it? It is for some people. This aching heart, for instance. Those wistful eyes of hers, drenched irises. And they used to dance like elves of delight, and all through a foolish misunderstanding about a shark. What a tragedy misunderstandings are!' that pretty romance broken and over, just because Mr. Glossop would insist that it was a flatfish. I saw that she had got the wires crossed. I'm not talking about Angela. But her heart is aching. I know it's aching, but so is somebody else's. She looked at me perplexed. Somebody else? Mr. Glossop's, you mean? No, I don't. Mrs. Travers's? The exquisite code of politeness of the Woosters prevented me clipping her one on the ear-hole. But I would have given a shilling to be able to do it. There seemed to me something deliberately fat-headed in the way she persisted in missing the gist. No, not Aunt Dahlia's, either. I'm sure she is dreadfully upset. Quite, but this heart I'm talking about isn't aching because of Tuppy's row with Angela. It's aching for a different reason altogether." I mean to say, dash it, you know why hearts ache. She seemed to shimmy a bit. Her voice, when she spoke, was whispery. You mean, for love? Absolutely. Right on the bull's-eye. For love. Oh, Mr. Wooster. I take it you believe in love at first sight? I do, indeed. Well, that's what's happened to this aching heart. It fell in love at first sight, and ever since it's been eating itself out, as I believe the expression is. There was silence. She had turned away and was watching a duck out on the lake. It was tucking into weeds, a thing I've never been able to understand anybody wanting to do, though I suppose if you face it squarely, they're no worse than spinach. She stood drinking it in for a bit, and then it suddenly stood on its head and disappeared, and this seemed to break the spell— "'Oh, Mr. Wooster,' she said again, and from the tone of her voice I could see that I had her going. "'For you,' I mean to say,' I proceeded, starting to put in the fancy touches. "'I dare say you've noticed on these occasions that the difficulty is to plant the main idea, to get the general outline of the thing well fixed. The rest is mere detail work. I don't say I became glib at this juncture, but I certainly became a dashed glibber than I had been.' It's having the dickens of a time. Can't eat, can't sleep, all for the love of you. And what makes it all so particularly rotten is that, this aching heart, can't bring itself to the scratch and tell you the position of affairs, because your profile has gone and given it cold feet. Just as it is about to speak, it catches sight of you sideways, and words fail it. Silly, of course, but there it is. I heard her give a gulp and I saw that her eyes had become moistish—drenched irises, if you care to put it that way. Lend you a handkerchief? No, thank you. I'm quite all right. It was more than I could say for myself. My efforts had left me weak. I don't know if you suffer in the same way, but with me the act of talking anything in the nature of real mashed potatoes always induces a sort of prickly sensation and a hideous feeling of shame together with a marked starting of the pores, I remember at my aunt Agatha's place in Herefordshire once, being put on the spot and forced to enact the role of King Edward III, saying good-bye to that girl of his, Fair Rosamond, at some sort of pageant in aid of the distressed daughters of the clergy. It involved some rather warmish medieval dialogue, I recall, Racy of the days when they called a spade a spade, and by the time the whistle blew, I'll bet no daughter of the clergy was half as distressed as I was. Not a dry stitch. My reaction now was very similar. It was a highly liquid Bertram, who, hearing his vis-à-vis give a couple of hiccups and start to speak bent an attentive ear. "'Please don't say any more, Mr. Wooster.' "'Well, I wasn't going to, of course.' "'I understand.' I was glad to hear this. Yes, I understand. I won't be so silly as to pretend not to know what you mean. I suspected this at Cannes, when you used to stand and stare at me without speaking a word, but with whole volumes in your eyes. If Angela's shark had bitten me in the leg, I couldn't have leaped more convulsively— So tensely I had been concentrating on Gussie's interest that it hadn't so much as crossed my mind that another and an unfortunate construction could be placed on those words of mine. The persp, already bedewing my brow, became a regular Niagara. My whole fate hung upon a woman's word. I mean to say, I couldn't back out. If a girl thinks a man is proposing to her, and on that understanding books him up— He can't explain to her that she has got hold of entirely the wrong end of the stick, and that he hadn't the smallest intention of suggesting anything of the kind. He must simply let it ride. And the thought of being engaged to a girl who talked openly about fairies being born because stars blew their noses, or whatever it was, frankly appalled me. She was carrying on with her remarks, and as I listened I clenched my fists till I shouldn't wonder if the knuckles didn't stand out white under the strain. It seemed as if she would never get to the nub. Yes, all through those days at Cannes I could see what you were trying to say. A girl always knows. And then you followed me down here, and there was that same dumb, yearning look in your eyes when we met this evening. And then you were so insistent that I should come out and walk with you in the twilight. And now you stammer out those halting words. No, this does not come as a surprise. But— I am sorry. The word was like one of Jeeves's pick-me-ups. Just as if a glass full of meat sauce, red pepper, and the yolk of an egg—though, as I say, I am convinced that these are not the sole ingredients—had been shot into me. I expanded like some lovely flower, blossoming in the sunshine. It was all right, after all. My guardian angel had not been asleep at the switch. But I'm afraid it's impossible she paused. Impossible, she repeated. I had been so busy feeling saved from the scaffold that I didn't get on to it for a moment that an early reply was desired. Oh, right-ho, I said hastily. I'm sorry. Quite all right. Sorrier than I can say. Don't give it another thought. We can still be friends. Oh, rather. Then shall we just say no more about it? Keep what has happened as a tender little secret between ourselves? Absolutely. We will, like something lovely and fragrant laid away in lavender. In lavender, right. There was a longish pause. She was gazing at me in a divinely pitying sort of way, much as if I had been a snail she had happened accidentally to bring her short French vamp down on, and i longed to tell her that it was all right— and that Bertram, so far from being the victim of despair, had never felt fizzier in his life. But, of course, one can't do that sort of thing. I simply said nothing, and stood there, looking brave. I wish I could, she murmured. Could, I said, for my attention had been wandering. Feel towards you as you would like me to feel. Oh, ah! But I can't. I'm sorry. Absolutely okay, False on both sides, no doubt. Because I am fond of you, mister— No, I think I must call you Bertie. May I? Oh, rather. Because we are real friends. Quite. I do like you, Bertie. And if things were different, I wonder— Eh? After all, we are real friends. We have this common memory. You have a right to know. I don't want you to think. Life is such a muddle, isn't it? To many men, no doubt, these broken utterances would have appeared mere drooling, and would have been dismissed as such. But the Woosters are quicker-witted than the ordinary, and can read between the lines. I suddenly divined what it was that she was trying to get off the chest. "'You mean there's someone else?' She nodded. "'You're in love with some other bloke?' She nodded. "'Engaged, what?' "'This time she shook the pumpkin.' No, not engaged. Well, that was something, of course. Nevertheless, from the way she spoke, it certainly looked as if poor old Gussie might as well scratch his name off the entry list, and I didn't at all like the prospect of having to break the bad news to him. I had studied the man closely, and it was my conviction that this would about be his finish. Gussie, you see, wasn't like some of my pals. The name of Bingo Little is one that springs to the lips who, if turned down by a girl, would simply say, "'Well, bugo, and toddle off quite happily to find another. He was so manifestly a bird, who, having failed to score in the first chucker, would turn the thing up and spend the rest of his life brooding over his newts, and growing long grey whiskers, like one of those chaps who read about in novels, who live in the great white house you can just see over there through the trees, and shut themselves off from the world, and have pained faces.' I'm afraid he doesn't care for me in that way. At least he has said nothing. You understand that I am only telling you this because— Oh, rather. It's odd that you should have asked me if I believed in love at first sight. She half closed her eyes. Who ever loved that loved not at first sight? She said in a rummy voice that brought back to me—I don't know why—the picture of my Aunt Agatha as Boadicea, reciting at that pageant I was speaking of— It's a silly little story. I was staying with some friends in the country, and I had gone for a walk with my dog, and the poor wee mite got a nasty thorn in his little foot, and I didn't know what to do. And then suddenly this man came along. Harking back once again to that patent, in sketching out for you my emotions on that occasion, I showed you only the darker side of the picture. There was, I should now mention, a splendid aftermath, when, having climbed out of my suit of chain-mail and sneaked off to the local pub, I entered the saloon bar and requested mine host to start pouring. A moment later, a tankard of their special home brood was in my hand, and the ecstasy of that first gollop is still green in my memory. The recollection of the agony through which I had passed was just what was needed to make it perfect. It was the same now— when I realized, listening to her words, that she must be referring to Gussie, I mean to say there couldn't have been a whole platoon of men taking thorns out of her dog that day, the animal wasn't a pincushion, and became aware that Gussie, who an instant before had, to all appearances, gone so far back in the bedding as not to be worth a quotation, was the big winner after all. A positive thrill permeated the frame, and there escaped my lips a, wow, so crisp and hearty, that the basset leaped a liberal inch and a half from terra firma. "'I beg your pardon,' she said. I waved a jaunty hand. "'Nothing,' I said, nothing. Just remember there's a letter I have to write to-night without fail. If you don't mind, I think I'll be going in. "'Here,' I said, "'comes Gussie Finknottle. He will look after you.' And as I spoke, Gussie came sidling out from behind a tree." I passed away and left them to it. As regards these two, everything was beyond a question absolutely in order. All Gussie had to do was keep his head down and not press. Already, I felt, as I legged it back to the house, the happy ending must have begun to function. I mean to say, when you leave a girl and a man, each of whom has admitted in set terms that she and he loves him and her, in close juxtaposition in the twilight, There doesn't seem much more to do but start pricing fish slices. Something attempted, something done, seemed to me to have earned two pennyworth of wassail in the smoking room. I proceeded thither. End of chapter 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 11 The makings were neatly laid out on a side table. And to pour into a glass an inch or so of the raw spirit and shoosh some soda water on top of it was with me the work of a moment. This done, I retired to an armchair and put my feet up, sipping the mixture with carefree enjoyment, rather like Caesar having one in his tent the day he overcame the nervi. As I let the mind dwell on what must even now be taking place in that peaceful garden, I felt bucked and uplifted though never for an instant faltering in my opinion that Augustus Finknoddle was nature's final word and cloth-headed guffins, I'd liked the man, and wished him well, and could not have felt more deeply involved in the success of his wooing if I, and not he, had been under the ether. The thought that by this time he might quite easily have completed the preliminary, pour and be deep in an informal discussion of honeymoon plans was very pleasant to me. Of course, considering the sort of girl Madeline Bassett was—stars and rabbits and all that, I mean—you might say that a sober sadness would have been more fitting. But in these matters you have to realize that tastes differ. The impulse of right-thinking men might be to run a mile when they saw the Bassett. But for some reason she appealed to the deeps in Gussie, so that was that. I had reached this point in my meditations when I was aroused by the sound of the door opening. Somebody came in and started moving like a leopard toward the side-table, and, lowering the feet, I perceived that it was Tuppy Glossop. The sight of him gave me a momentary twinge of remorse, reminding me, as it did, that in the excitement of getting Gussie fixed up, I had rather forgotten about this other client. It was often that way when you're trying to run two cases at once. However, Gussie now being off my mind, I was prepared to devote my whole attention to the Glossop problem." I had been much pleased by the way he had carried out the task assigned him at the dinner-table. No easy one, I can assure you, for the browsing and sluicing had been of the highest quality, and there had been one dish in particular, I allude to the nonettes de poulet Agnes sorel which might well have broken down the most iron resolution. But he had passed it up like a professional fasting man, and I was proud of him. "'Oh, hello, tuppy,' I said. I wanted to see you.' He turned, sniffed her in hand, and it was easy to see that his privations had tried him sorely. He was looking like a wolf on the steppes of Russia, which has seen its peasant shin up a high tree. "'Yes,' he said rather unpleasantly. "'Well, here I am.' "'Well?' "'What do you mean, well?' "'Make your report.' "'What report?' "'Have you nothing to tell me about Angela?' "'Only that she's a blister.' I was concerned. "'Hasn't she come clustering round you yet?' "'She has not.' "'Very odd.' "'Why odd? She must have noted your lack of appetite.' He barked raspingly, as if he were having trouble with the tonsils of the soul. "'Lack of appetite. I'm as hollow as the Grand Canyon.' "'Courage, tuppy. Think of Gandhi.' "'What about Gandhi?' He hasn't had a square meal for years." "'Nor have I. Or I could swear I hadn't. Gandhi my left foot. I saw that it might be best to let the Gandhi motif slide. I went back to where we had started. "'She's probably looking for you now.' "'Who is, Angela?' "'Yes. She must have noticed your supreme sacrifice.' "'I don't suppose she noticed it at all, the little fathead. I'll bet it didn't register in any way whatsoever. "'Come, tuppy,' I urged. "'This is morbid. Don't take this gloomy view. She must have at least have spotted that you refused those nonettes de Pouillet sorel It was a sensational renunciation and stuck out like a sore thumb, and the sepé à la racine—' A hoarse cry broke from his twisted lips. "'Will you stop it, Bertie? Do you think I'm made of marble?' Isn't it bad enough to have sat watching one of Anatole's supremest dinners flit by, course after course, without having you making a song about it? Don't remind me of those nonettes. I can't stand it. I endeavored to hearten and console. Be brave, tuppy. Fix your thoughts on that cold steak-and-kidney pie in the larder. As the good book says, it cometh in the morning. Yes, in the morning and it's now half-past nine at night. You would bring that pie up, wouldn't you? Just when I was trying to keep my mind off it. I saw what he meant. Hours must pass before he could dig into that pie. I dropped the subject, and we sat for a pretty good time in silence. Then he rose and began to pace the room in an overwrought sort of way, like a zoo-lion who has heard the dinner-gong go and is hoping the keeper won't forget him in the general distribution.' I averted my gaze tactfully, but I could hear him kicking chairs and things. It was plain that the man's soul was in travail and his blood pressure high. Presently he returned to his seat, and I saw that he was looking at me intently. There was that about his demeanour that led me to think that he had something to communicate. Nor was I wrong. He tapped me significantly on the knee and spoke. Bertie. Hello. Hello. "'Shall I tell you something?' "'Certainly, old bird,' I said cordially. "'I was just beginning to feel that the scene could do with a bit more dialogue. "'This business of Angela and me?' "'Yes.' "'I've been putting in a lot of solid thought about it.' "'Oh, yes?' "'I have analysed the situation pitilessly, and one thing stands out as clear as damn it: There has been dirty work afoot.' "'I don't get you.' All right, let me review the facts. Up to the time she went to Cannes, Angela loved me. She was all over me. I was the blue-eyed boy in every sense of the term. You'll admit that. Indisputably. And directly she came back we had this bust-up. Quite. About nothing. Oh, dash it, old man, nothing. You were a bit tactless, what, about her shark?' I was frank and candid about her shark, and that's my point. Do you seriously believe that a trifling disagreement about sharks would have made a girl hand a man his hat if her heart were really his? Certainly. It beats me why he couldn't see it. But then poor old Tuppy has never been very hot on the finer shades. He's one of those large, tough, football-playing blokes who lack the more delicate sensibilities, as I've heard Jeeves call them." excellent at blocking a punt or walking across an opponent's face in cleated boots, but not so good when it comes to understanding the high-strung female temperament. It simply wouldn't occur to him that a girl might be prepared to give up her life's happiness rather than wave her shark. "'Rot! It was just pretext.' "'What was?' "'This shark business. She wanted to get rid of me and grabbed at the first excuse.' "'No, no.' I tell you she did. What on earth would she want to get rid of you for? Exactly. That's the very question I asked myself. And here's the answer. Because she has fallen in love with somebody else. It sticks out a mile. There's no other possible solution. She goes to Khan all for me. She comes back all off me. Obviously, during those two months, she must have transferred her affections to some foul blister she met out there. No, no. Don't keep saying no, no. She must have done. But I'll tell you one thing, and you can take this as official. If I ever find this slimy, slithery snake in the grass, he had better make all the necessary arrangements at his favorite nursing home without delay, because I'm going to be very rough with him. I propose, if and when found, to take him by his beastly neck shake him till he froths, and pull him inside out and make him swallow himself. With which words he biffed off, and I, having given him a minute or two to get out of the way, rose and made for the drawing-room. The tendency of females to roost in drawing-rooms after dinner being well marked, I expected to find Angela there. It was my intention to have a word with Angela." To Tuppy's theory that some insinuating bird had stolen the girl's heart from him at Cannes, I had given, as I have indicated, little credence, considering it the mere unbalanced applesauce of a bereaved man. It was, of course, the shark, and nothing but the shark, that had caused Love's young dream to go temporarily off the boil, and I was convinced that a word or two with a cousin at this juncture would set everything right. For, frankly— I thought it incredible that a girl of her natural sweetness and tender-heartedness should not have been moved to her foundations by what she had seen at dinner that night. Even Seppings, Aunt Dahlia's butler, a cold, unemotional man, had gasped and practically reeled when Tuppy waved aside those nonettes to poulet Agne Sorel, while the footman, standing by with the potatoes, had stared like one seeing a vision." I simply refused to consider the possibility of the significance of the thing having been lost on a nice girl like Angela. I fully expected to find her in the drawing-room with her heart bleeding freely, all ripe for an immediate reconciliation. In the drawing-room, however, when I entered, only Aunt Dahlia met the eye. It seemed to me that she gave me a rather jaundiced look as I hove in sight, but this, having so recently beheld Tuppy in his agony, i attributed to the fact that she like him had been going light on the menu you can't expect an empty aunt to beam like a full aunt oh it's you is it she said well of course it was where's angela i asked gone to bed already she said she had a headache hmm i wasn't so sure i liked the sound of that so much A girl who has observed the sundered lover sensationally off his feet does not go to bed with headaches if love has been reborn in her heart. She sticks around and gives him the swift, remorseful glance from beneath the drooping eyelashes, and generally endeavours to convey to him that, if he wants to get together across a round table and try to find a formula, she is all for it, too. Yes, I am bound to say I found that going-to-bed stuff a bit disquieting, "'Gone to bed, eh?' I murmured musingly. "'What did you want her for?' "'I thought she might like a stroll and a chat.' "'Are you going for a stroll?' said Aunt Dahlia, with a sudden show of interest. "'Where?' "'Oh, hither and thither. Then I wonder if you would mind doing something for me. "'Give it a name.' "'It won't take you long. You know that path that runs past the greenhouses into the kitchen garden? If you go along it, you come to a pond.' "'That's right.' "'Well,' will you get a good stout piece of rope or cord and go down on that path till you come to the pond—to the pond, right?—and look about till you find a nice heavy stone. Or a fairly large brick will do. I see, I said, although I didn't, being still fogged. Stone or brick, yes. And then— Then, said the relative— I want you, like a good boy, to fasten the rope to the brick and tie it around your damned neck and jump into the pond and drown yourself. In a few days I will send and have you fished up and buried, because I shall need to dance on your grave.' I was more fogged than ever, and not only fogged, wounded and resentful. I remember reading a book where a girl suddenly fled from the room, afraid to stay for fear dreadful things would come tumbling from her lips— determined that she would not remain another day in this house to be insulted and misunderstood. I felt much about the same. Then I reminded myself that one has got to make allowances for a woman with only about half a spoonful of soup inside her, and I checked the red-hot crack that rose to the lips. What, I said gently, is this all about? You seem pipped with Bertram. Pipped? Noticeably pipped. Why all this ill-concealed animus?' A sudden flame shot from her eyes, singeing my hair. "'Who was the ass? Who was the chump? Who was the dithering idiot who talked me, against my better judgment, into going without my dinner? I might have guessed.' I saw that I had divined correctly the cause of her strange mood. "'It's all right, Aunt Dahlia. I know just how you are feeling—' A bit on the hollow side, what? But the agony will pass. If I were you, I'd sneak down and raid the larder after the household have gone to bed. I am told there's a pretty good steak and kidney pie there which will repay inspection. Have faith, Aunt Dahlia, I urged. Pretty soon Uncle Tom will be along, full of sympathy and anxious inquiries. Will he? Do you know where he is now? I haven't seen him. He is in his study, with his face buried in his hands, muttering about civilization and melting-pots. Eh? Why? Because it has been my painful duty to inform him that Anatole has given notice. I own that I reeled. What? Given notice. As the result of that driveling scheme of yours, what did you expect a sensitive, temperamental French cook to do, if you went about urging everybody to refuse all food. I hear that when the first two courses came back to the kitchen practically untouched, his feelings were so hurt that he cried like a child. And when the rest of the dinner followed, he came to the conclusion that the whole thing was a studied and calculated insult, and decided to hand in his portfolio. Golly! You may well say golly— Anatole, God's gift to the gastric juices, gone like the dew off the petal of a rose, and all through your idiocy. Perhaps you'll understand now why I want you to go and jump in that pond. I might have known that some hideous disaster would strike this house like a thunderbolt if once you wriggled your way into it and started trying to be clever. Harsh words, of course, as from aunt to nephew, but I bore her no resentment no doubt if you looked at it from a certain angle bertram might be considered to have made something of a floater i am sorry what's the good of being sorry i acted for what i deemed the best another time try acting for the worst then we may possibly escape with a mere flesh wound uncle tom's not feeling too bucked about it all you say he's groaning like a lost soul and any chance I ever had of getting that money out of him has gone. I stroked the chin thoughtfully. There was, I had to admit, reason in what she said. None knew better than I how terrible a blow the passing of Anatole would be to Uncle Tom. I have stated earlier in this chronicle that this curious object of the seashore with whom Aunt Dahlia has linked her lot is a bloke who habitually looks like a pterodactyl that has suffered— and the reason he does so is that all those years he spent in making millions in the Far East put his digestion on the blink, and the only cook that has ever been discovered capable of pushing food into him without starting something like old home week in Moscow under the third waistcoat button is this uniquely gifted Anatole. Deprived of Anatole's services, all he was likely to give the wife of his bee was a dirty look. Yes, unquestionably, things seemed to have struck a somewhat rocky patch, and I must admit that I found myself, at moment of going to press, a little destitute of constructive ideas. Confident, however, that these would come ere long, I kept the stiff upper lip. Bad, I conceded. Quite bad, beyond a doubt. Certainly a nasty jar for one and all. But have no fear, Aunt Dahlia. I will fix everything." I have alluded earlier to the difficulty of staggering when you are sitting down, showing that it is a feat of which I, personally, am not capable. Dahlia, to my amazement, now did it apparently without an effort. She was well wedged into a deep-arm chair, but nevertheless she staggered like a bilio. A sort of spasm of horror and apprehension contorted her face. If you dare to try any more of your lunatic schemes— I saw that it would be fruitless to try to reason with her. Quite plainly, she was not in the vein. Contenting myself, accordingly, with a gesture of loving sympathy, I left the room. Whether she did or did not throw a handsomely bound volume of the works of Alfred, Lord Tennyson, at me, I am not in a position to say. I had seen it lying on the table beside her, and, as I closed the door, I remember receiving the impression that some blunt instrument had crashed against the woodwork but I was feeling too preoccupied to note and observe. I blame myself for not having taken into consideration the possible effects of a sudden abstinence on the part of virtually the whole strength of the company on one of Anatole's impulsive Provencal temperament. These Gauls, I should have remembered, can't take it. Their tendency to fly off the handle at the slightest provocation is well known. No doubt the man put his whole soul into those nonettes de Poulet, and to see them come homing back to him must have gashed him like a knife. However, spilt milk blows nobody any good, and it's useless to dwell upon it. The task now confronting Bertram was to put matters right, and I was pacing the lawn, pondering to this end, when I suddenly heard a groan so lost-soulish that I thought it must have proceeded from Uncle Tom, escaped from captivity, and come to groan in the garden. Looking about me, however— I could discern no uncles. Puzzled, I was about to resume my meditations when the sound came again. And, peering into the shadows, I observed a dim form seated on one of the rustic benches which so liberally dotted this pleasance, and another dim form standing beside Same. A second and more penetrating glance, and I had assembled the facts. These dim forms were, in the order named, Gussie Finknottle and Jeeves and what Gussie was doing, groaning all over the place like this, was more than I could understand. Because, I mean to say, there was no possibility of error. He wasn't singing. As I approached, he gave an encore, and it was beyond question a groan. Moreover, I could now see him clearly, and his whole aspect was definitely sandbagged. "'Good evening, sir,' said Jeeves. "'Mr. Finknordle is not feeling well.' Nor was I. Gussie had begun to make a low, bubbling noise, and I could no longer disguise it from myself that something must have gone seriously wrong with the works. I mean, I know marriage is a pretty solemn business, and the realization that he is in for it frequently churns a chap up a bit, but I'd never come across a case of a newly engaged man taking it on the chin so completely as this. Gussie looked up. His eye was dull. He clutched the thatch. Goodbye, Bertie, he said, rising. I seem to spot an error. You mean hello, don't you? No, I don't. I mean goodbye. I'm off. Off where? To the kitchen garden to drown myself. Don't be an ass. I'm not an ass. Am I an ass, Jeeves? Possibly a little injudicious, sir. DROWNING MYSELF, YOU MEAN? YES, SIR. YOU THINK, ON THE WHOLE, NOT DROWN MYSELF? I SHOULD NOT ADVOCATE IT, SIR. VERY WELL, JEEVES. I ACCEPT YOUR RULING. AFTER ALL, IT WOULD BE UNPLEASANT FOR MRS. TRAVERS TO FIND A swollen BODY FLOATING IN HER POND. YES, SIR. AND SHE HAS BEEN VERY KIND TO ME. YES, SIR. AND YOU HAVE BEEN VERY KIND TO ME, JEEVES. THANK YOU, SIR. So have you, Bertie. Very kind. Everybody has been very kind to me. Very, very kind. Very kind indeed. I have no complaints to make. All right, I'll go for a walk instead. I followed him with bulging eyes as he tottered off into the dark. Jeeves, I said, and I am free to admit that in my emotion I bleated like a lamb drawing itself to the attention of the parent sheep, what the dickens is all this? Mr. finknottle is not quite himself, sir. He has passed through a trying experience. I endeavoured to put together a brief synopsis of previous events. I left him out here with Miss Bassett. Yes, sir. I had softened her up. Yes, sir. He knew exactly what he had to do. I had coached him thoroughly in lines and business." "'Yes, sir. So Mr. informed me.' "'Well, then?' "'I regret to say, sir, there was a slight hitch.' "'You mean something went wrong?' "'Yes, sir. I could not fathom. The brain seemed to be tottering on its throne. "'But how could anything go wrong? She loves him, Jeeves.' "'Indeed, sir?' "'She definitely told me so. All he had to do was propose.' Yes, sir. Well, didn't he? No, sir. Then what the dickens did he talk about? Newts, sir. Newts. Yes, sir. Newts. Yes, sir. But why did he want to talk about newts? He did not want to talk about newts, sir, as I gather from Mr. Finknottle, nothing could have been more alien to his plans. I simply couldn't grasp the trend. "'But you can't force a man to talk about newts.' Mr. Finknoddle was the victim of a sudden unfortunate spasm of nervousness, sir. Upon finding himself alone with a young lady, he admits to having lost his morale. In such circumstances, gentlemen frequently talk at random, saying the first thing that chances to enter their heads. This, in Mr. Finknoddle's case, would seem to have been the newt.' It's treatment in sickness and in health. The scales fell from my eyes. I understood. I had had the same sort of thing happen to me in moments of crisis. I remember once detaining a dentist with a drill at one of my lower bicuspids and holding him up for nearly ten minutes with a story about a Scotchman, an Irishman, and a Jew. Purely automatic. The more he tried to jab, the more I said, Hootsman, Begora, and Oi, Oi." When one loses one's nerve, one simply babbles. I could put myself in Gussie's place. I could envisage the scene. There he and the Basset were, alone together in the evening stillness. No doubt, as I had advised, he had shot the works about sunsets and fairy princesses and so forth, and then had arrived at the point where he had to say that bit about having something to say to her. At this, I take it, she lowered her eyes and said, "'Oh, yes?' he then, I should imagine, said it was something very important, to which her response would, one assumes, have been something on the lines of, really, or indeed, or possibly just the sharp intake of the breath. And then their eyes met, just as mine met the dentist's, and something suddenly seemed to catch him in the pit of the stomach, and everything went black, and he heard his voice starting to drool about Newt's. Yes, I could follow the psychology." Nevertheless, I found myself blaming Gussie. On discovering that he was stressing the Newt note in this manner, he ought, of course, to have tuned out, even if it had meant sitting there saying nothing. No matter how much of a twitter he was in, he should have had sense enough to see that he was throwing a spanner into the works. No girl, when she has been led to expect that a man is about to pour forth his soul in a fervour of passion, likes to find him suddenly shelving the whole topic in favour of an address on aquatic salamindridae. Bad, Jeeves. Yes, sir. And how long did this nuisance continue? For some not inconsiderable time, I gather, sir. According to Mr. Finknottle, he supplied Miss Bassett with very full and complete information, not only with respect to the common newt, but also the crested and palmated varieties.' He described to her how newts, during the breeding season, live in the water, subsisting upon tadpoles, insect larvae, and crustaceans, how later they make their way to the land and eat slugs and worms, and how the newly born newt has three pairs of long, plum like external gills. And he was just observing that newts differ from salamanders in the shape of the tail, which is compressed and that a marked sexual dimorphism prevails in most species, when the young lady rose and said that she thought she would go back to the house. And then she went, sir. I stood musing. More and more it was beginning to be borne in upon me what a particularly difficult chap Gussie was to help. He seemed to so marked an extent to lack snap and finish— WITH INFINITE TOIL YOU MANEUVERED HIM INTO A POSITION WHERE ALL HE HAD TO DO WAS CHARGE AHEAD, AND HE DIDN'T CHARGE AHEAD, BUT WENT OFF SIDEWAYS, MISSING THE OBJECTIVE COMPLETELY. DIFFICULT, JEEVES? YES, SIR. IN HAPPIER CIRKS, OF COURSE, I WOULD HAVE CONVASSED HIS VIEWS ON THE MATTER, BUT AFTER WHAT HAD OCCURRED IN CONNECTION WITH THAT MESS-JACKET, MY LIPS WERE SEALED. WELL, I MUST THINK IT OVER. Yes, sir. Burnish the brain a bit and endeavor to find the way out. Yes, sir. Well, good night, Jeeves. Good night, sir. He shimmered off, leaving a pensive Bertram Wooster standing motionless in the shadows. It seemed to me that it was hard to know what to do for the best. End of chapter 11 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Nelson. Right Ho Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 12. I don't know if it has happened to you at all, but a thing I've noticed with myself is that, When I am confronted by a problem which seems for the moment to stump and baffle, a good sleep will often bring the solution in the morning. It was so on the present occasion. The nibs who study these matters claim, I believe, that this has got something to do with the subconscious mind, and very possibly they may be right. I wouldn't have said offhand that I had a subconscious mind, but I suppose I must without knowing it, and no doubt it was there, sweating away diligently at the old stand, all the while the corporeal wooster was getting the eight hours. For directly, I opened my eyes on the morrow, I saw daylight. Well, I don't mean that exactly, because naturally I did. What I mean is that I found I had the thing all mapped out. The good old subconscious M had delivered the goods and I perceived exactly what steps must be taken in order to put Augustus Finknoddle among the practicing Romeos. I should like you, if you can spare me a moment of your valuable time, to throw your mind back to that conversation he and I had had in the garden on the previous evening. Not the glimmering landscape bit, I don't mean that, but the concluding passages of it. Having done so, you will recall that when he informed me that he had never touched alcoholic liquor, I shook the head a bit, feeling that this must inevitably weaken him as a force where proposing to girls was concerned. And events had shown that my fears were well-founded. Put to the test, with nothing but orange juice inside him, he had proved a complete bust. In a situation calling for words of molten passion of a nature calculated to go through Madeline Bassett like a red-hot gimlet through a half a pound of butter, he had said not a syllable that could bring a blush to the cheek of modesty, merely delivering a well-phrased, but, in the circumstances, quite misplaced lecture on newts. A romantic girl is not to be won by such tactics. Obviously, before attempting to proceed further, Augustus Finknaddle must be induced to throw off the shackling inhibitions of the past and fuel up. It must be a primed, Confident, Fink who squared up to the basset for round two. Only so could the morning post make its ten bob, or whatever it is, for printing the announcement of the forthcoming nuptials. Having arrived at this conclusion, I found the rest easy, and by the time Jeeves brought me my tea, I had evolved a plan complete in every detail. This I was about to place before him—indeed, I had got as far as the preliminary, I say jeeves when we were interrupted by the arrival of Tuppy. He came listlessly into the room, and I was pained to observe that a night's rest had effected no improvement in the unhappy wreck's appearance. Indeed, I should have said, if anything, that he was looking rather more moth-eaten than when I had seen him last. If you can visualize a bulldog which has just been kicked in the ribs and had its dinner sneaked by the cat, you will have Hildebrand Glossop as he now stood before me." Stop my vitals, tuppy old corpse,' I said, concerned. "'You're looking pretty blue around the rims.' Jeeves slid from the presence in that tactful, eel like way of his, and I motioned the remains to take a seat. "'What's the matter?' I said. He came to anchor on the bed, and for a while sat picking at the coverlet in silence. "'I've been through hell, Bertie.' "'Through where?' "'Hell. "'Oh, hell! And what took you there?' Once more he became silent, staring before him with somber eyes. Following the gaze, I saw that he was looking at an enlarged photograph of my Uncle Tom in some sort of Masonic uniform which stood on the mantelpiece. I've tried to reason with Aunt Dahlia about this photograph for years, placing before her two alternative suggestions—a, to burn the beastly thing, or b, if she must preserve it, to shove me in another room when I come to stay— but she declines to accede. She says it's good for me. A useful discipline, she maintains, teaching me that there is a darker side to life and that we were not put into this world for pleasure only. Turn it to the wall if it hurts you, tuppy, I said gently. Eh? That photograph of Uncle Tom as the bandmaster. I didn't come here to talk about photographs. I came for sympathy. And you shall have it. "'What's the trouble? Worrying about Angela, I suppose? Well, have no fear. I have another well-laid plan for encompassing that young shrimp. I'll guarantee that she will be weeping on your neck before yonder sun has set.' He barked sharply. "'A fat chance!' Top, Tushy! Eh? I mean, tush, Tuppy. I tell you I will do it. I was just going to describe this plan of mine to Jeeves when you came in. Care to hear it?' I don't want to hear any of your beastly plans. Plans are no good. She's gone and fallen in love with this other bloke, and now hates my gizzard. Rot. It isn't rot. I tell you, Tuppy, as one who can read the female heart, that this Angela loves you still. Well, it didn't look like it much in the larder last night. Oh, you went to the larder last night? I did. And Angela was there? She was and your aunt, also your uncle. I saw that I should require footnotes. All this was new stuff to me. I had stayed at Brinkley Court quite a lot in my time, but I had no idea the larder was such a social vortex. More like a snack-bar on a race-course than anything else, it seemed to have become. Tell me the whole story in your own words, I said, omitting no detail, however apparently slight, for one never knows how important the most trivial detail may be. He inspected the photograph for a moment, with growing gloom. "'All right,' he said. "'This is what happened. You know my views about that steak and kidney pie.' "'Quite. Well, round about 1 a.m., I thought the time was ripe. I stole from my room and went downstairs. The pie seemed to beckon me. I nodded. I know how pies do. I got to the larder. I fished it out. I set it on the table— I found knife and fork. I collected salt, mustard, and pepper. There were some cold potatoes. I added those. I was about to pitch in when I heard a sound behind me, and there was your aunt at the door, in a blue and yellow dressing gown. Embarrassing? Most. I suppose you didn't know where to look. I looked at Angela. She came in with my aunt? No, with your uncle a minute or two later he was wearing mauve pyjamas and carried a pistol. Have you ever seen your uncle in pyjamas and a pistol? Never. You haven't missed much. "'Tell me, tuppy,' I asked, for I was anxious to ascertain this, "'about Angela. Was there any momentary softening in her gaze as she fixed it on you?' "'She didn't fix it on me. She fixed it on the pie.' "'Did she say anything?' "'Not right away.' Your uncle was the first to speak. He said to your aunt, God bless my soul, Dahlia, what are you doing here? To which she replied, Well, if it comes to that, my merry somnambulist, what are you? Your uncle then said that he thought there must be burglars in the house, as he had heard noises. I nodded again. I could follow the trend. Ever since the scullery window was found open, the year shining light was disqualified in the Caesar Witch for boring, Uncle Tom has had a marked complex about burglars. I can still recall my emotions when, paying my first visit after he had bars put on all the windows, and attempting to thrust the head out in order to get a sniff of country air, I nearly fractured my skull on a sort of iron grill, as worn by the tougher kinds of medieval prison. "'What sort of noises?' said your aunt. "'Funny noises,' said your uncle. Whereupon Angela, with a nasty, steely tinkle in her voice, the little buzzard, observed, I expect it was Mr. Glossop eating. And then she did give me a look. It was the sort of wondering, revolted look a very spiritual woman would give a fat man gulping soup in a restaurant. The kind of look that makes a fellow feel he's forty-six around the waist, and has great rolls of superfluous flesh pouring down over the back of his collar. And still speaking in the same unpleasant tone, she added, I ought to have told you, father, that Mr. Glossop always likes to have a good meal three or four times during the night. It helps to keep him going till breakfast. He has the most amazing appetite. See, he has practically finished the large steak and kidney pie already. As he spoke these words, a feverish animation swept over Tuppy. His eyes glittered with a strange light, and he thumped the bed violently with his fist, nearly catching me a juicy one on the leg." That was what hurt, Bertie. That what was stung. I hadn't so much as started on that pie. But that's a woman all over. The eternal feminine, she continued her remarks. You've no idea, she said, how Mr. Glossop loves food. He just lives for it. He always eats six or seven meals a day, and then starts in again after bedtime. I think it's rather wonderful. Your aunt seemed interested and said it reminded her of a boa constrictor. Angela said, didn't she mean a python? And then they argued as to which of the two it was. Your uncle, meanwhile, poking about with that damned pistol of his till human life wasn't safe in the vicinity. And the pie lying there on the table, and me unable to touch it. You begin to understand why I said I had been through hell. Quite. Can't have been at all pleasant." Presently, your aunt and Angela settled their discussion, deciding that Angela was right and that it was a python that I reminded them of. And shortly after that, we all pushed back to bed. Angela warning me in a motherly voice not to take the stairs too quickly. After seven or eight solid meals, she said, a man of my build ought to be very careful because of the danger of apoplectic fits. She said it was the same with dogs— When they became very fat and overfed, you had to see that they didn't hurry upstairs, as it made them puff and pant, and that was bad for their hearts. She asked your aunt if she remembered the late Spaniel Ambrose. And your aunt said, Poor old Ambrose, you couldn't keep him away from the garbage pail. And Angela said, Exactly, so do please be careful, Mr. Glossop. And you tell me she loves me still. I did my best to encourage. "'Girlish banter, what?' "'Girlish banter, be dashed. She's right off me. Once her ideal, I am now less than the dust between her chariot wheels. She became infatuated with this chap, whoever he is, at Cannes, and now she can't stand the sight of me. My dear tuppy, you are not showing your usual good sense in this Angela chap at Cannes matter. If you will forgive me saying so, you have got an idee fix.' A what? An idea fix. You know, one of those things fellows get. Like Uncle Tom's delusion that everybody who is known even slightly to the police is lurking in the garden, waiting for a chance to break into the house. You keep talking about this chap at Cannes, and there never was a chap at Cannes, and I'll tell you why I'm so sure about this. During those two months on the Riviera, it so happens that Angela and I were practically inseparable." If there had been somebody nosing round her, I should have spotted it in a second. He started. I could see that this had impressed him. Oh, she was with you all the time at Cannes, was she? I don't suppose she said two words to anybody else, except, of course, idle conv at the crowded dinner-table, or a chance remark in a throng at the casino. I see— "'You mean that anything in the shape of mixed bathing and moonlight stroll she conducted solely in your company?' "'That's right. It was quite a joke at the hotel.' "'You must have enjoyed that.' "'Oh, rather, I've always been devoted to Angela.' "'Oh, yes?' "'When we were kids, she used to call herself my little sweetheart.' "'She did.' "'Absolutely.' "'I see.' He sat plunged in thought— while I, glad to have set his mind at rest, proceeded with my tea, and presently there came the banging of a gong from the hall below, and he started like a war-horse at the sound of the bugle. Breakfast, he said, and was off to a flying start, leaving me to brood and ponder. The more I brooded and pondered, the more did it seem to me that everything now looked pretty smooth. Tuppy, I could see, despite that painful scene in the larder, still loved Angela with all the old fervor. This meant that I could rely on that plan to which I had referred to bring home the bacon, and as I had found the way to straighten out the gussy basset difficulty, there seemed nothing more to worry about. It was with an uplifted heart that I addressed Jeeves as he came in to remove the tea-tray. End of chapter 12 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or, to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Right Ho, Jeeves! by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 13 Jeeves, I said. Sir, I have just been having a chat with young Tuppy Jeeves, Did you happen to notice that he wasn't looking very roguish this morning? Yes, sir. It seems to me that Mr. Glossop's face was sicklied o'er with a pale cast of thought. Quite. He met my cousin Angela in the larder last night, and a rather painful interview ensued. I am sorry, sir. Not half so sorry as he was. She found him closeted with a steak-and-kidney pie— and appears to have been a bit caustic about fat men who lived for food alone. Most disturbing, sir. Very. In fact, many people would say that things had gone so far between these two, nothing now could bridge the chasm. A girl who would make cracks about human pythons who ate nine or ten meals a day, and ought to be careful not to hurry upstairs because of the danger of apoplectic fits, is a girl, many people would say, in whose heart love is dead. Wouldn't people say that, Jeeves? Undeniably, sir. They would be wrong. You think so, sir? I am convinced of it. I know these females. You can't go by what they say. You feel that Miss Angela's stricture should not be taken too much au pied de la lettre, sir? Eh? In English we should say literally. 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 That's exactly what I mean. You know what girls are. A tiff occurs, and they shoot their heads off. But, underneath it all, the old love still remains. Am I correct? Quite correct, sir. The poet Scott. Right ho, Jeeves. Very good, sir. And in order to bring that old love whizzing to the surface once more, all that is required is the proper treatment. By proper treatment, sir, you mean— "'Clever handling, Jeeves. A spot of the good old snaky-work. I see what must be done to jerk my cousin Angela back to normalcy. I'll tell you, shall I?' "'If you would be so kind, sir.' I lit a cigarette and eyed him keenly through the smoke. He waited respectfully for me to unleash the words of wisdom. I must say, for Jeeves, that, till, as he is so apt to do, he starts shoving his oar in and cavilling and obstructing, He makes a very good audience. I don't know if he is actually agog, but he looks agog, and that's the great thing. Suppose you were strolling through the illimitable jungle, Jeeves, and happened to meet a tiger-cub. The contingency is a remote one, sir. Never mind. Let us suppose it. Very good, sir. Let us now suppose that you sloshed that tiger-cub, and let us suppose further that word reached its mother that it was being put upon— What would you expect the attitude of that mother to be? In what frame of mind do you consider that that tigress would approach you? I should anticipate a certain show of annoyance, sir. And rightly. Due to what is known as the maternal instinct, what? Yes, sir. Very good, Jeeves. We will now suppose that there has recently been some little coolness between this tiger cub and this tigress. For some days, let us say, they have not been on speaking terms. Do you think that that would make any difference to the vim with which the latter would leap to the former's aid? No, sir. Exactly. Here, then, in brief is my plan, Jeeves. I am going to draw my cousin Angela aside to a secluded spot and roast Tuppy property. Roast, sir? Knock. Slam. Tick off. Abuse. Denounce. "'I shall be very terse about Tuppy, giving it as my opinion that in all essentials he is more like a warthog than an ex-member of a fine old English public school. What will ensue? Hearing him attacked, my cousin Angela's womanly heart will be as sick as mud. The maternal tigress in her will awake. No matter what differences they may have had, she will remember only that he is the man she loves, and will leap to his defence and from that to falling into his arms and burying the dead past will be but a step. How do you react to that?' "'The idea is an ingenious one, sir.' "'We Woosters are ingenious, Jeeves. Exceedingly ingenious.' "'Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, I am not speaking without a knowledge of the form-book. I have tested this theory.' "'Indeed, sir.' "'Yes, in person. And it works.' I was standing on the Eden Rock at Antibes last month, idly watching the bathers disport themselves in the water, and a girl I knew slightly pointed at a male diver and asked me if I didn't think his legs were about the silliest-looking pair of props ever issued to a human being. I replied that I did, indeed, and for the space of perhaps two minutes was extraordinarily witty and satirical about this bird's underpinning. At the end of that period, I suddenly felt as if I had been caught up in the tail of a cyclone. Beginning with a critique of my own limbs, which, he said, justly enough, were nothing to write home about, this girl went on to dissect my manners, morals, intellect, general physique, and method of eating asparagus with such acerbity that by the time she had finished, the best you could say of Bertram was that, so far as was known, he had never actually committed murder or set fire to an orphan asylum. Subsequent investigation proved that she was engaged to the fellow with the legs— and had had a slight disagreement with him the evening before on the subject of whether he should or should not have made an original call of two spades, having seven, but without the ace. That night I saw them dining together with every indication of relish, their differences made up, and the love-light once more in their eyes. That shows you, Jeeves. Yes, sir. I expect precisely similar results from my cousin Angela when I start roasting Tubby. By lunchtime, I should imagine, the engagement will be on again, and the diamond and platinum ring glittering as of yore on her third finger. Or is it the fourth? Scarcely by lunchtime, sir. Miss Angela's maid informs me that Miss Angela drove off in her car early this morning, with the intention of spending the day with friends in the vicinity. Well, within half an hour of whatever time she comes back, then. These are mere straws, Jeeves. Do not let us chop them. No, sir. The point is that, as far as Tuppy and Angela are concerned, we may say with confidence that everything will shortly be hot see once more. And what an agreeable thought that is, Jeeves. Very true, sir. If there is one thing that gives me the pip, it is two loving hearts being estranged. I can readily appreciate the fact, sir. I placed the stub of my gasper in the ashtray and lit another— to indicate that that completed chap one. Righto, then. So much for the Western Front. We now turn to the Eastern. "'Sir?' "'I speak in parables, Jeeves. What I mean is we now approach the matter of Gussie and Miss Bassett.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Here, Jeeves, more direct methods are required. In handling the case of Augustus Finknottle, we must keep always in mind the fact that we are dealing with a poop.' A sensitive plant would, perhaps, be a kinder expression, sir. No, Jeeves, a poop. And with poops one has to employ the strong, forceful, straightforward policy. Psychology doesn't get you anywhere. You, if I may remind you, without wounding your feelings, fell into the error of mucking about with psychology in connection with this fink and the result was a washout. You attempted to push him over the line by rigging him out in a Mephistopheles costume and sending him off to a fancy-dress ball, your view being that scarlet tights would embolden him. Futile. The matter was never actually put to the test, sir. No, because he didn't get to the ball. And that strengthens my argument. A man who can set out in a cab for a fancy-dress ball and not get there is manifestly a poop of no common order." "'I don't think I have ever known anybody else who was such a dashed silly ass that he couldn't even get to a fancy-dress ball. Have you, Jeeves?' "'No, sir.' "'But don't forget this, because it is the point I wish, above all, to make, even if Gussie had got to that ball, even if those scarlet tights taken in conjunction with his horn-rimmed spectacles hadn't given the girl a fit of some kind, even if she had rallied from the shock and he had been able to dance and generally hobnob with her—' even then your efforts would have been fruitless, because, Mephistopheles' costume, or no Mephistopheles' costume, Augustus Finknottle would never have been able to summon up the courage to ask her to be his. All that would have resulted would be that she would have got that lecture on Newt's a few days earlier. And why, Jeeves? Shall I tell you why? Yes, sir. Because he would have been attempting the hopeless task of trying to do the thing on orange juice. Sir? Gussie is an orange-juice addict. He drinks nothing else.' "'I was not aware of that, sir. I have it from his own lips. Whether from some hereditary taint, or because he promised his mother he wouldn't, or simply because he doesn't like the taste of the stuff, Gussie Finknottle has never, in the whole course of his career, pushed so much as the simplest gin and tonic over the larynx. And he expects—this poop expects, Jeeves— This wobbling, shrinking, diffident rabbit in human shape expects under these conditions to propose to the girl he loves. One hardly knows whether to smile or weep. What? You consider total abstinence a handicap to a gentleman who wishes to make a proposal of marriage, sir? The question amazed me. Why, dash it, I said, astounded. You must know it is. Use your intelligence, Jeeves. Reflect what proposing means.' It means that a decent, self-respecting chap has got to listen to himself saying things which, if spoken on a silver screen, would cause him to dash to the box office and demand his money back, let him attempt to do it on orange juice, and what ensues? Shame seals his lips, or, if it doesn't do that, makes him lose his morale and start to babble. Gussie, for example, as we have seen, babbles of syncopated newts. "'Palmated newts, sir.' Paul palmated or syncopated, it doesn't matter which. The point is that he babbles, and is going to babble again if he has another try at it. Unless, and this is where I want you to follow me very closely, Jeeves, unless steps are taken at once through the proper channels. Only active measures, promptly applied, can provide this poor, pusillanimous poop with a proper pep, and that is why, Jeeves, I intend to-morrow to secure a bottle of gin and lace his luncheon orange-juice with it liberally. Sir? I clicked the tongue. I have already had occasion, Jeeves, I said rebukingly, to comment on the way you say well, sir, and indeed, sir. I take this opportunity of informing you that I object equally strongly to your sir pure and simple. The word seems to suggest that in your opinion I have made a statement or mooted a scheme so bizarre— that your brain reels at it. In the present instance, there is absolutely nothing to say sir about. The plan I have put forward is entirely reasonable and icily logical, and should excite no sirring whatsoever. Or don't you think so?' "'Well, sir—' "'Jeeves!' "'I beg your pardon, sir.' The expression escaped me inadvertently. "'What I intended to say, since you press me—' was that the action which you propose? does seem to me somewhat injudicious.' "'Injudicious? I don't follow you, Jeeves.' "'A certain amount of risk would enter into it, in my opinion, sir. It is not always a simple matter to gauge the effect of alcohol on a subject unaccustomed to such stimulants. I have known it to have distressing results in the case of parrots.' "'Parrots?' I was thinking of an incident of my earlier life sir before i entered your employment i was in the service of the late lord bancaster at the time a gentleman who owned a parrot to which he was greatly devoted and one day the bird chanced to be lethargic and his lordship with the kindly intention of restoring it to its customary animation offered it a portion of seed-cake steeped in the eighty-four port the bird accepted the morsel gratefully and consumed it with every indication of satisfaction. Almost immediately afterwards, however, its manner became markedly feverish. Having bitten its lordship in the thumb, and sung part of a sea-chanty, it fell to the bottom of the cage and remained there for a considerable period of time, with its legs in the air, unable to move. I mention this, sir, in order to—I put my finger on the flaw. I had spotted it all along— BUT Gussie ISN'T A PARROT. NO, SIR, BUT— IT IS HIGH TIME, IN MY OPINION, THAT THIS QUESTION OF WHAT YOUNG Gussie REALLY IS WAS THRESHED OUT AND CLEARED UP. HE SEEMS TO THINK HE IS A MALE NEWT, AND YOU NOW APPEAR TO SUGGEST THAT HE IS A PARROT, THE TRUTH OF THE MATTER BEING THAT HE IS JUST A PLAIN, ORDINARY POOP AND NEEDS A SNOOTFUL AS BADLY AS EVER MAN DID. SO, NO MORE DISCUSSION, JEEVES. MY MIND IS MADE UP. There is only one way of handling the difficult case, and that is the way I have outlined. Very good, sir. Right-ho, Jeeves. So much for that, then. Now here's something else. You noticed that I said I was going to put this project through to-morrow, and no doubt you wondered why I said tomorrow. Why did I, Jeeves? Because you feel that if it were done when tis done, then t'were well it were done quickly, sir? Partly, Jeeves, but not altogether— my chief reason for fixing the date as specified is that to-morrow, though you have doubtless forgotten, is the day of the distribution of prizes at Market-Snodsbury Grammar School, at which, as you know, Gussie is to be the male star and master of the revels. So you see we shall, by lacing that juice, not only embolden him to propose to Miss Bassett, but also put him so into shape that he will hold the Market-Snodsbury audience spellbound." In fact, you will be killing two birds with one stone, sir. Exactly. A very neat way of putting it. Now, here is a minor point. On second thoughts, I think the best plan would be for you, not me, to lace the juice. Sir? Jeeves! I beg your pardon, sir. And I'll tell you why that would be the best plan. Because you are in a position to obtain ready access to the stuff. It is served to Gussie daily, I have noticed, in an individual jug. This jug will presumably be lying about the kitchen or somewhere before lunch tomorrow. It will be the simplest of tasks for you to slip a few fingers of gin in it. No doubt, sir. But— Don't say but, Jeeves. I fear, sir— I fear, sir, is just as bad. What I am endeavouring to say, sir, is that— I am sorry— but I am afraid I must enter an unequivocal nola prosequi. To what? Uh, the expression is a legal one, sir, signifying the resolve not to proceed with a matter. In other words, eager though I am to carry out your instructions, sir, as a general rule, in this occasion I must respectfully decline to cooperate. You won't do it, you mean? Uh, precisely, sir. I was stunned— I began to understand how a general must feel when he has ordered a regiment to charge and has been told that it isn't in the mood. Jeeves, I said, I had not expected this of you. No, sir? No, indeed. Naturally, I realize that lacing Gussie's orange juice is not one of those regular duties for which you receive the monthly stipend, and if you care to stand on the strict letter of the contract, I suppose there is nothing to be done about it but you will permit me to observe that this is scarcely the feudal spirit. I am sorry, sir. It is quite all right, Jeeves, quite all right. I am not angry, only a little hurt. Very good, sir. Right-ho, Jeeves. End of chapter 13 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich.